Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And together we research and break down complex issues facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to try and make it clear when we're giving our opinions versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human, and our blind spots and biases will show through, but our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful, beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, some of the things that we talk about can get pretty heavy and they might even be divisive. But we believe that common understanding can be found And we hope that those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it has to be. Together, we can build a better world for ourselves and for future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand, as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. came out on the first day. I didn't even think about that. Happy Happy Black History Month. I don't know if that's the official way to say it or that's how it goes, but (laughs) uh, if you're listening to this, find yourself a a black author, black artist, black scientist, somebody to to learn about. Because I learned today that the man who invented uh, cartridge-based video game consoles so that you could take out a video game and change it and play on the same console was a black man. And we have him to think for the current state of video games and how they operate. His name was Gerald Anderson Lawson, or Jerry Lawson. So uh, he died in 2011, but thank you very much, Mr. Lawson, for your contributions to my life. (laughs) That's super cool. And my happiness. And the world. Certainly, personally, owe him a great deal for some happy, happy moments in my own life. That was pretty fun. That is very so, cool. Well, we'll make yeah. sure that in the next, uh, what do we have, two or three more episodes of Black History Month, we'll make sure yeah. that we do a shout out like that. That's pretty cool. Yep. Sweet. All right. Let's get into it. Okay. So, over the last few months, we've taken a closer look at some of the trappings surrounding the end of a presidency, right? Presidential transitions, presidential pardons. But this week, in celebration of all things new, we wanted to chat about a concept that has kind of come to define the beginning of an American presidency, and that is the first 100 days. Uh, We wanted to know just where this concept comes from and why there's so much pressure on an administration to accomplish so much in such a short time. Um, And then we'll also talk some more about what incoming presidents and their administrations are trying to accomplish and how the processes around those policy decisions work. And then we'll we'll talk about what President Biden's administration has cooked up for the beginning of this term. Of course, as always, we'll wrap it up with some good news because, well, there's bound to be quite a bit of it. All right. So my big question when we were talking about this is what on earth is the deal with these first 100 days? Like, why does this even matter? And so, in order to understand the context of measuring a president by their first 100 days, we're going to have to take it back to the place where so much of modern American politics goes back to good old FDR. 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 He was the man. He was. 
in, <laughs> in early 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt accidentally set the standard for future presidents by articulating his goal of accomplishing as much as possible in his first 100 days. At that point in time, the country was in the throes of an all-out crisis and nothing short of a policy freight train was going to keep us afloat. So that's what Roosevelt did. His legislative action calmed the financial panic that had overtaken us, and he began rolling out the programs that made up his New Deal. His administration passed 15 major pieces of legislation, 76 overall, in the first 100 days. And this flurry of productivity translated into enormous popularity for the president, and then that set a standard against which we continue to measure our presidents. There is a significant underlying reason why FDR was so successful with his policymaking in those first 100 days. He took office during one of the most significant crises, crises, one of the most significant problems in American history. Folks on every side of the aisle were keen to solve the problems at hand because everyone, regardless of political affiliation, was suffering. It's pretty unfair to hold almost any other president to that standard, and yet the trend, primarily upheld by journalists, as much of politics is, <laughs> uh, who get to write those attention-grabbing articles and create cool comparison tables and, and used by candidates as great campaign sound bites. that trend of the first 100 days continues. And, and we got to say it, most presidents fall short in that 100 days. They fall far short of the things that they promise, which really is objectively fine because it's an arbitrary deadline. President Kennedy famously said, all this will not be finished in the first 100 days, nor will it be finished in the first 1,000 days, nor in the life of this administration, nor even perhaps in our lifetime on this planet. But let us begin. But then, because this standard has been adopted so thoroughly, it makes a president seem as though he's fallen short of some significant mark if he doesn't accomplish everything that he set out to accomplish in that first 100 days. I mean, even Roosevelt fell short of his own goal for his first 100 days. To understand, you know, how, how to get stuff done in that first 100 days, you have to know how things get done. Uh, that sounds tautological. But it is, so we're going to keep marching on. <laughs> so the first 100 the day. days... Huh? I said, there's your 50-cent word for the day. Yep, that's right. Um, so if the first 100 days of a new presidency are supposed to be so incredibly productive, you might be asking how they managed to get spun up and get so much accomplished that quickly, especially when we have talked about previously how the first months of a presidency are also filled with getting people hired and getting positions filled and sorting out transition stuff. There is a lot on a president's plate in that time period. This year, uh, Congress is also going to be doing an impeachment trial on top of everything else. Exactly. Because why not? So that's a fair question. It's a question that we have. And the answer is actually found in one of our past episodes. In episode 11, uh, we cover the ins and outs of presidential transitions, including all the steps that they take toward political appointments that I just mentioned and, and policy planning before the administration is sworn in on January 20th. Long story short, so much of what get, 
gets accomplished in those first 100 days is planned in detail. Conversations are had, the right people are put in the right places, all of the pieces and parts that need to be ready for this policy to be accomplished is prepared. And, and that happens before the president-elect becomes the president. An administration does not just pop into office and then start making a checklist of things to do starting on January 21st. Remember, candidates campaign on these policies. They make first 100-day promises all over the place, the whole campaign, it seems like. So it's no surprise that their substantial teams of advisors and appointees and potential cabinet members have everything drafted and ready to roll. It's those final few weeks that they start to refine things a little bit. They start to pare down things that aren't going to be accomplished, can't be accomplished for whatever reason, and get specifics put in. But the outline and the bones and the structure of what they want to accomplish has been there probably since they started campaigning. Exactly. I mean, they, they know what they're doing the entire time. So really, once they once they jump into office, once the administration is sworn in, it's like you got 100 days to just flip all the switches and let that stuff roll. Another factor that we have to consider when we ask how so much gets done is what researcher Casey Dominguez calls a 100-day honeymoon period. Dominguez looked at bills on which presidents took public positions, right? The ones that they came out and said, in my first 100 days, I'm going to. And she saw that, that chief executive officers do actually enjoy greater rates of success with Congress early on on those bills. And this success is not fully explained by like a public opinion bounce, right? Because most incoming presidents are popular or by strategic choices about which bills to support during the first 100 days. Her research concluded that a president's influence during this period is actually and demonstrably higher than later on in the administration. It's like a happy little bubble where, you know, they don't hate him as much yet. So they're more willing to do what he wants. More willing to listen. Everybody's, everybody's feeling each other out at that point. And you don't want to take a hard line against the new president before you fully understand how that president is operating. Right. I do feel like, and I've seen some analysis that has suggested that Biden won't even get that 100-day honeymoon yeah. period because he is a, a former vice president. And a, a long, long time senator. So everybody already knows how this man operates and, and right. what he's going to do. Yeah. And actually that article um, that was talking about this honeymoon period was, I think it was from early 2017. And I think it could probably be argued that President Trump did not get that honeymoon period either, considering mm. that I don't think it even took a week of him being in office before it was publicly declared by some Democratic members of Congress that they were looking for a reason to impeach him. Yeah. There was no honeymoon period. No. I don't believe. Not great. Not great. He, I think, unfortunately for, for Americans, the way Trump conducted himself on the campaign trail set a precedent that made him wildly unpopular with, with standard politicians from the get-go, which is what won him the election in the first place, but cost him a lot of political influence, at least with the opposing party, uh, because of what he had to do to get there. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's worth saying that this 100 days is not like 100 days of honeymoon period with the American public. This is kind of outside of that and totally looking at the legislative process that 
the new president is going to engage in in his interactions with Congress in that first 100 days. New presidents can also take advantage of their position to issue executive orders without the help of Congress. Everybody, I am sure, if you're listening to this podcast, has heard about executive orders at this point. Uh, For example, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, all consecutive presidents issued memoranda reversing the previous administration's rules about abortion funding and international aid shortly after taking office. One of Jimmy Carter's early executive orders was related to his pardon of Vietnam draft dodgers. And these actions seem to come under fire, especially recently, as the number of executive orders has crept up as working Congress has become increasingly uncooperative. Oh, that's such a diplomatic saw, way of saying that. Yeah. Delicate. I saw a lot of people complaining already on social media about how Biden is ruling by executive order. You know, he said that legislation by executive order meant you weren't a leader. Paraphrasing, of course. And it's so intellectually dishonest that it's irking me I mean, this is why I have a podcast because I can just say what I want right here. He is undoing previous executive orders by executive order. So the bulk of what he is doing, or at least a large part of it, is just canceling out the last executive order. It's not a right. new order. And it is, as we just discussed, basically tradition at this point. You know, interestingly, despite all the muss and fuss about productivity of the first 100 days, evidence actually suggests that presidents' first 100 days have become less productive since the storied beginning of FDR's first term. Political scientists John Frandis, Raymond Tatalovich, and John Schaff have done some digging and found that while the FDR effect may have put pressure on modern presidents, modern congresses aren't actually any more productive during the first 100 days. <laughs> So that that you can kind of just like get done. Yeah, you could just end that sentence. Modern congresses just aren't productive. <laughs> Period. Boop. End. Full the stop. End. But uh, I figured it might be kind of fun for our listeners to uh, engage in our second favorite pastime on this podcast: statistics. Fast facts. So we're gonna do fast facts, right? So let's talk about how many laws presidents got passed in their first 100 days. FDR passed the most with his 76 laws passed during his first 100 days. George W. Bush was the fewest with seven. He got seven actual pieces of legislation accomplished. That's, that is not to say that he didn't wow. get anything done. This is just pieces of legislation. Right. Uh, President Barack Obama managed to visit nine foreign countries during his first 100 days. That is the most of any other president. Whereas Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter, and Donald Trump did not visit any foreign countries during their first 100 days. Um, We were just talking about executive orders and making them and revoking them until President Biden, President Obama led the way, having signed 19 executive orders in his first 100 days and revoked nine Before him, George W. Bush signed 11 and revoked four. President Clinton signed 13 and revoked two. And then President Reagan signed 18 and revoked 18. And again, these are just in the first 100 days. Um, As of January 29th, President Biden was at 25. So currently, he is sitting at the most number of executive orders signed during his first 100 days. Yeah. 
Um, some less less auspicious numbers to throw <laughs> in here. Uh, John F. Kennedy ordered the failed Bay of Pigs invasion 87 days into his term. That's a big oof. Like, oh, what a way to start. I mean, yeah, the bookends of his presidency aren't exactly great. Um, Reagan, Reagan was shot in the chest on his 69th day in office. And he actually had to sign his first bill into law over a breakfast tray at George Washington University Hospital. Uh, nonetheless, he delivered an address to a joint session of Congress on the eve of his 100th day mark, making an argument for cutting taxes and curbing inflation. I mean, there you go. That's a that's quite he, an accomplishment. I know. That's President... I. I I, there's only two, I think, but the presidents, they get shot in the chest and then just keep talking. <laughs> right. <laughs> it makes me unreasonably happy. American exceptionalism at its best. I mean, that is actually pretty exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> we can shoot our politicians. They just keep going. Right. Okay. So now that we've talked a little bit about the history, and I'm going to be honest, I kind of was expecting there to be like a lot more tradition to this first 100 days business other than like FDR said he was going to knock out a bunch of stuff and all the journalists were like, hey, this makes good press. Like, yeah. All right. It's just, it's so arbitrary. <laughs> it's, it's so, so arbitrary, arbitrary. But I, you hear it nonstop. Yeah. Now. Like that's the his standard for judging days. a president. So yeah. let's talk then about President Biden and his first 100 days. Uh, the first 100 days of a presidency are filled with a whirlwind of activity as we have made clear at this point. Uh, so it should be no surprise to you that President Biden's first 100 days are going to be filled with a slew of policy initiatives that his administration hopes to tackle. He campaigned on basically his entire platform is no, we're going to fix that. Uh, so he's yeah. got a lot of work to <laughs> we do. <got> that. <laughs> he's got a lot of work to do. And one of the first places that he's going to start, no surprise to anybody, is trying to handle this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So, I mean, it's absolutely, it hasn't been a mystery to anybody that President Trump's management of the pandemic might best be summed up as the question, what management? Disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Yes. And from our shores, we've, you know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. Yeah. I mean, yep. Pretty much sums it up right there. Yeah. A significant misstep that likely cost Trump the election and has definitely cost American lives is his management of, is Trump's management of, of the pandemic. And that's not an opinion, by the way. Just going to make it clear. That's actually fact. Right now we're sitting at just about 460,000 deaths in the United States, uh, probably by the time this airs. Do you know how long it took for 400,000 Americans to die in World War II? I don't know. Four years. Jeez. It took four years for 400,000 Americans to die in World War II. We in the United States blew by that number in less than a year with coronavirus. And I'm just, ah, I keep having flashbacks to all these hot takes a year ago about how COVID isn't that bad and it's just like a the seasonal flu, but maybe a little worse and it's all being blown out of proportion. And it pisses me off a little bit. I don't know <laughs> if you could tell. And the, 
The frustrating part about it is even now you'll talk to somebody and you'll say, look at how many people have died. And they'll say, oh, well, those numbers aren't accurate. It's just like, I want to pull out my hair. And we talked about with conspiracy theories, how people get hung up on on their ideas and and that confirmation bias and and believing what they want to believe. Not going to address it here, but it's just, ah, oh, according to epidemiologists, approximately 60% of American COVID-19 deaths could have been avoided had Trump enacted measures sooner. That is over 271,000 extra deaths at the time of this recording. That is why the Biden administration has outlined three key points they want to focus on with respect to this pandemic. Masks, vaccines, and schools. I think that all of the scientists that have interacted with everyone around the world about this this virus have unilaterally come to the conclusion that masks are crucially important. They were important before we had a vaccine because they were our best way of continuing on with life around each other without, hopefully without spreading the virus. Um, But they're also a critical component of our vaccine response because there is that inevitable lag between manufacturing and getting vaccines into the arms of Americans. And then there's that space between your first dose of the vaccine and the second dose of the vaccine, right? We've got to get people... We shouldn't be saying this more than a year into this, but we have to get people to destigmatize wearing masks. Yeah. Like somehow being able to put on that paper or cloth mask is still some sort of cultural shorthand for your party affiliation and not just a necessary annoyance to keep people healthy anymore. We're still fighting over whether masks are a partisan or a political issue. Um, So in order to help solve this problem, President Biden intends to call on businesses and religious leaders, including pastors and rabbis and imams, to normalize wearing face coverings. Biden will also appeal directly to Americans to take a 100-day mask challenge in which they agree to cover their noses and their mouths, because that's how you wear a mask, in public for at least the first three months of his presidency. You know... North Dakota just rescinded their statewide mask mandate, by the way. Of course they did. Yeah, North Dakota, which, by the way, had, uh, for the longest time, the worst infection and death rate in the United States and is still, like, number five on the list for deaths in the United States. Rural North Dakota, without any massive population centers, somehow is that high up on the list. And they're like, yeah, we don't need masks anymore. Yeah, no, I've been to rural North Dakota, and there's like seven of them. I don't, I don't understand how it gets that complicated. Politics, that's all. Right, Extreme exactly. Politization. I mean, we're still having to convince skeptics to mask up almost a year into the pandemic, and so it is going to be absolutely no small feat for President Biden to accomplish this, especially after the Trump administration made them kind of a cultural fault line. There's a great quote from Dr. Lena Wen, who is a former health commissioner of Baltimore and a current visiting professor at the George Washington University School of Public Health that says, there has been nearly a year of disinformation around the pandemic, and to repair that is going to be an extraordinary task. But still, President Biden is attempting to take that on in his first 100 days. Um, And his first major problem is going to be winning hearts and minds 
across half the country that not only did not vote for him, but might actively distrust what he has to say. Compound that with vaccinations and the slew of information, misinformation, fighting that's happening around those. The the Trump administration approach to vaccines was essentially to get them to the individual states and then allow those states to determine how to distribute those doses, uh, which is why in some states you have a digital line that you can sign up for and it tells you when to come in for it. And in some states like Florida, you just show up and first come, first serve. And it's not great. Not working that well. According to the White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, it appears that there was no distribution plan for the vaccine set up by the Trump administration at all, and that the Biden administration will essentially have to start from scratch. So Biden's team will be involved in distributing vaccine supplies to priority populations. Dr. Howard Foreman, a professor of public health and management at Yale University, who has been advising Biden's campaign about this, said, we want to see the federal government coordinating more doses between states and even within states between nursing homes and the general public so that we're not allowing inventory to sit unused in areas where there's lower demand. To that end, I saw, I think, yesterday that Biden... uh, activated, I don't know if that's the right term, has dispatched, has allowed a thousand members of the military to go in order to distribute vaccines as well. Nice. uh, To to basically surging that to to assist. This is further complicated. This distribution is further complicated by the general politicalization and misinformation surrounding the vaccine itself. Only 60% of Americans say they would definitely or probably get a vaccine for the coronavirus if one were available today, which was, that was, this was, that survey was taken late 2020. The good news is that that figure, 60%, is up from 51% who said the same thing in September of 2020. The bad news is that that means that there are about 4 in 10, or roughly 39% of people, who say they definitely or probably would not get a coronavirus vaccine. Now, in fairness to those people, roughly half of that group, that 40%, I think something like 18%, say they will reconsider their stance as more information about the effects of the vaccine comes out. So that's... That's good. But the fact that there's such a large, large percentage of the American population that are struggling or just totally mistrust the the vaccine at all is going to be a massive hurdle for the Biden administration to try to overcome in the first 100 days. Yeah. I mean, I think you said it early on, like the problem is not that people are, you know, skeptical about the science or they want to know more about the side effects or anything like that. The problem is that this vaccine has been politicized, just like masks, just like so much about this pandemic. It's the politics that and the conspiracies that would keep people from getting it, not an actual pursuit of good science. Yeah. And that's like, I don't know, that's going to be a huge hurdle for them to try to overcome, especially from a PR perspective. But I know he's got a crack team of communicators. So uh, Jin Saki. Yes. She's going to circle back to it. I'm a real big fan. 
Really Actually, good. I really dig that she says that. Somebody was making fun of her saying that, you know, her two options are saying, I'm going to circle back to it or I'm going to lie. And they were like laughing at her, right? <laughs> saying that she was struggling with the decision. And I was like, I don't know. I kind of appreciate that she's not just firing from the hip yeah. about stuff. Uh, and yes. she almost always comes back at the next press conference and says, hey, you asked about this. This is your answer. I, so I just don't get where that hate's coming from, especially after disasters like Sarah Huckabee Sanders oh and Caitlin, uh, Caitlin McEnany. Uh, yeah. Oh. It's just like, sure. They yeah. never said, they, they, they never said, oh, I don't know. I'll get back to you on that. They just kind of went off and said whatever. And yeah. it just blows my mind that that is somehow considered better well, than and being like, I don't know. I'll get back to you. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day because we were discussing how, um, basically how Senator Ocasio-Cortez is presented in, um, across media and how the reaction to what she says is often vitriolic. And we were talking about the fact that you get to a point when you are having an argument or a discussion or a conversation with somebody and they get they come to where they can no longer defend their position. They don't have any a good comeback. They don't have a good argument. And so the only thing that they can do is default to personal attack. And I feel like that's what they're doing, right? Like, so she's got a vocal crutch. We all have them. Some of us say um, some of us say so, some of us say like. Some of us repeat the same phrase a bunch of times when we're talking. You'll hear a million of them in this podcast. So she yeah, says... Say some of us do all of those in the course of a podcast. Right. So she says, let me circle back to that. And could she use a little bit of variety in saying, I'm going to come back to that in the next press conference? Sure, she totally could. But the point is, she is actually doing that. The point is, she's making a note to come back and answer that question. But because there is no actual attack for that, like because there is nothing wrong with saying, let me get back to you on that, they have to attack her crutch. They have to attack her weakness when it comes to speaking in front of the entire White House press corps. I don't know. It's yeah, a dumb attack. Yeah. It's dumb. The attacks on her, get a better been, one. it's fascinating, though, to watch the attacks on Jin Saki because... <laughs> I saw another one that said, have you ever seen a Ferrari uh, parked next to a fire truck? And it had a picture of Kay uh, McEnany and, and Saki like side oh, by yeah. side, mm-hmm. somehow implying that being prettier, one was prettier than the other and that that made them better, I guess. I right. don't know. I mean, the way I see it, a Ferrari is kind of useless anyway. <laughs> you can't right. do anything with it. At least the fire truck helps the people. So. I mean, yeah, we could we could spend a hot minute dissecting the the objectification of women in positions of power oh, and yeah. uh, just a how gross that is. I mean, ew, that's gross. Yeah, like don't be yeah. that person. It but does, yeah, how horrible does is it that unless you are, if you're a woman, if you're not absolutely flawless on screen, whatever you are doing or saying is just secondary to how you right if if what you are even if if it's even considered at all right i wish so i wish that we could collectively just spend 24 hours where we do that to literally every dude on television (laughs) it's like nope not listening to a word that dude has to say he's got a dad bod oh you see that beer guy oh i see some gray in that beard not listening to that dude 
Like, what right. the hell? Anyway, I I could wait I would say forever. In that circumstance, though, Phil Mattingly, he would still be able to 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 give the news because that <laughs> man is flawless the all the time. Uh, yeah, it's just gross, and I could rant on it forever, but I won't because I want to talk about President Biden's commitment in the first 100 days to dealing with schools and school closures. Right. right. Reopening schools, again, hot button issue. But President Biden has said that getting our schools open safely and effectively is a national emergency. I mean, it's not so easy. The CDC says that it can be safe for teachers and students to be back in physical classrooms under the right conditions. And those conditions include maximizing ventilation and running HVAC units for specific periods of time and using HEPA filters and even adding UV sanitation systems to the ventilation equipment. Um, But also they're modifying the layout of the rooms and they're installing physical barriers and, of course, maintaining social distancing measures at all times. I mean, my kids are back in school. They're back in physical seated school four days a week. They have one day that they do virtual learning where the schools are all deep cleaned in our school system. And they they take as many of these precautions as possible. And we've seen great success. But the problem with these guidelines is it highlights the greater problem with the United States school system. There is a huge lack of funding and there are massive disparities when it comes to what funding is available within the public school system. According to the National Education Association, per-pupil spending and overall federal education spending have declined to dangerously low levels. Uh, They arrived at that conclusion in 2017, which is long before the pandemic had strained an already struggling system to pretty much its breaking point in many districts. More than two decades ago, the U.S. Government Accountability Office reported that as many as 28 million students attended schools with significant structural problems, including 15,000 schools with unsafe indoor air quality. By 2013, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave public schools a D-plus grade on its national report card, and one 2016 estimate reported that it would cost roughly $145 billion annually to maintain and to modernize school buildings so that all students could learn in safe environments. Again, before the pandemic hit, those are the determinations made. In short, what this means is some (laughs) schools are not equipped to handle safely reopening. Not all of them anyway. Some schools don't even have HVAC units let alone HEPA filters and UV sanitation capability. I mean, I'm in my 30s, but my elementary school growing up didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> I don't think my middle school did either because it was the same building. And I, I honestly don't even know if they have it now. If they do, it's probably a window unit. I, I just don't know. Um, and I know that I'm not the only student that was in that, but ours was not the only school, and there are still schools that don't have HVAC units. And that alone, that alone is enough to bring serious questions to the forefront about the safety of reopening schools at this time. And that doesn't even begin to consider the problems caused by things like overcrowded school systems. For all of these reasons and more, the nation's educators are pushing back against the idea of reopening fully at this time, and they are threatening to strike if the issue is forced. The uncertainty surrounding the virus combined with the potentially fatal consequences 
have caused teachers to dig in their heels. And many are saying schools should only be opened when the teachers at least are fully vaccinated. Some of them are saying when the teachers and the students are fully vaccinated, then they can return to school. So amid this fight, the Biden administration continues to push to open schools, citing data about transmission rates. The guidance from the CDC about reopening schools was actually prompted by an executive order that Biden signed in his first week, uh, where he asked them, or I guess ordered them, (laughs) to provide guidance about how schools can safely reopen. But the goalposts have already moved with what safe like safely means and reopening. Uh, Initially, Biden was talking about, or President Biden was talking about reopening all schools. Literally, that was the phrase. And they've changed it to majority of our schools. And then uh, he shifted a little more to only applying to, to kindergarten through eighth grade and not high schoolers. On top of that, Dr. Anthony Fauci has already walked back the goal of getting schools opened in the first 100 day period. Uh, saying that there may be mitigating circumstances that that make that not possible. So it's it's all it's it's a incredibly tangled problem already, already, and one of the biggest goals of the Biden administration when it comes to their handling of the pandemic. Unfortunately, there's just no clear path forward at this time. There's no best practice, or we know this is going to be the safest way to do this at this time. So it's setting the task up, this specific part, uh, to be the most complicated problem, uh, at least when it comes to the pandemic, for Biden's first yeah. three months. You know? it, I mean, if, if he can manage to get that accomplished, I'm going to be, I'm going to be incredibly impressed, because I trust that that he and Dr. Fauci would not move forward unless they felt like they could do that safely. I, I hope safely. To, I hope that that would be yeah. the case. Um, I mean, speaking of complicated and tangled problems, right? <laughs> Pretty sure when 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 Biden was given the metaphorical menu of uh, the presidency from 2021 <laughs> to 2025, uh, it was literally all just complicated problems and he had it was like sorry sir that's that's what came in at the market today right he's like can i just get the dinosaur chicken nuggets of presidential policy on this that would be real great no 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 chicken tendies exactly exactly during his first 100 days in office president biden has also taken some pretty comprehensive action on immigration policy as well He's noted that he wants to reform the U.S. asylum system and change the way that we treat those who come to America via the border with Mexico. Uh, President Biden has called for an end to the migrant protection protocols, which were the policies that basically mandated that those entering from the U.S. border with Mexico had to return to Mexico to await their asylum or immigration hearings um, and to end the metering of asylum cases that was enacted by the Trump administration. Basically, the Trump administration said we're only going to hear, you know, a certain number of cases in a certain time frame. Um, he has also pledged to stop funding for ongoing construction of a wall at the southern border, though he's not planning to have what's already been construction constructed taken down. And the Biden administration's immigration plans will also increase supervision of immigration and customs enforcement, commonly referred to as ICE, and Customs and Border Protection, who have come under fire for allegations of inhumane treatment, as stories about conditions and medical treatments at immigration detention centers have taken the forefront. 
it's <laughs> weird reading this now because if you think back, uh, the immigration problem was the news item for it seems like a year uh, when President Trump first came into office and it is incredible that the last in this last year the pandemic not incredible not really even remarkable it's to be expected that this pandemic has overshadowed literally everything else everything else it's crazy because I had almost not forgotten but I, I certainly wasn't wasn't at the front of mind the uh, the detention centers and the stories of, of family separation and those visuals and the fact that it just now is starting to be undone is ugh. yeah it it's crazy to me that like the different layers that we have dealt with to get us to the point where we have kind of forgotten that in Georgia a whole host of women have basically claimed that they were forced to um, to have surgical sterilization yeah. while they were in right? yeah while they were in yeah. custody of of immigration nice. enforcement like where have we gotten to where the layers of things that have happened have kind of that's at the bottom of our memory which is by the way one of the in, like that is <laughs> definition textbook definition of genocide by the way for sterilizations that's one of the ways you can commit genocide right and we're just like oh yeah that's 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 pretty bad like that's as much emotional reaction that it's garnering anyway right yeah it's just so he's gonna he's gonna try to fix that he's gonna try to hopefully fix that. and by the way uh something that I want to interject really quick. I, there is this, I think, perception that because Biden won, people aren't going to be as critical of him as they were of Trump. People who were upset about the actions that Trump was taking. And I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that the criticism will be of a different flavor. But mm -hmm. I, for one, fully intend on being equally as pissed off at Biden <laughs> if if he doesn't reverse these or if he doesn't take steps to fix this situation. So you can, you can support an administration and also acknowledge that it's not taking the steps that it needs to be taking and doing the things it needs to be doing. And that's all fine. That's not hypocritical. This idea that people aren't going to hold Biden accountable, I think, ignores the reality of the fact that party affiliation doesn't necessarily mean that the problems people are facing are going to be solved and people are going to be upset about that no matter if you have a D after your name or an R after your name. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of like, well, it goes back to what we talk about on this podcast, right? This is not about hard line affiliation. This is about living in the middle, living in the reality of the American people and the places that we come together and if we were upset about what President Trump was doing and we get a new administration in and, and they don't work to rectify those things, they don't work to solve the problems, then they're not doing any better job. Yeah. Yeah. I think the point of me bringing that up was to just 
provide people who hear this the the permission structure that we talked about yeah. to, to if you voted for Biden and feel like you can't criticize him for some for whatever reason no <laughs> get after it yeah write those angry letters to to him too even though he's he's of the party that you prefer uh because it 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 doesn't matter make sure that the people the politicians are pursuing the policies alliteration nice that you prefer nailed it nailed it oh, so good nothing better avoid than alliteration always another potential uh, another focus rather of the first 100 days uh getting back on track here criminal justice we've talked about it i'm sure everybody's heard about it uh criminal justice reform during the the, the 100 day window is going to be and has been addressed as being paramount for uh, for Biden's administration, especially after the influence and the unrest uh, caused by the deaths of George Floyd and others at the hands of police in 2020. Uh, Biden says he plans to create a National Police Oversight Commission within this 100-day uh, window as part of a larger plan to overhaul policing in America. His goal also includes a $300 million investment in community-based policing and quick passage of the Safe Justice Act, which takes steps to reduce the use of mandatory minimum sentencing for nonviolent offenses and to institute policies that aim to reduce recidivism. And as somebody who has worked in criminal justice and studied criminal justice, the faster we get rid of mandatory minimums, the better. They are horrible for criminal justice and, and American justice. Uh, I am 100% behind that. Yeah, that one's going to be really interesting. Um, and I know it falls outside the window of the 100 days, but there is also the action that the Biden administration has taken to end contracts with private prisons, which has the potential to be very impactful as well. As long as, as long, I would be more comfortable and happy with that particular legislation if we could get it passed through Congress. Yeah. Um, and, and and not able to be reversed here in four years. Should right. Biden uh, lose the presidency to somebody who doesn't support that. Agreed. Uh, Biden has also um, intended to take on some foreign policy, uh, but his foreign policy plans during the first 100 days are far more nebulous than some of these other action areas that he's hoping to address. He has said that his intention is to, quote, pick up the pieces of Donald Trump's broken foreign policy. Uh, and he, he hopes to plan both a global summit for democracy and a climate world summit to kind of help reestablish America's place in the global policy conversation. But neither of those actions will take place during the first 100 days. And being in the middle of a global pandemic makes it questionable as to when um, an actual physical summit would be possible. There's actually a whole slew of policies that kind of fall into that. Maybe it's going to be in the first 100 days. They would like it to be in that first 100 days, but it might not be possible. Uh, there's creating 5 million jobs through the proposed Made in America plan, which is a series of large investments benefiting various business areas and basically infuse $400 billion into procurement measures uh, to boost you know, domestic manufacturing and then an additional $300 billion into research and development. There's also extensive environmental policy outlined in the Clean Energy Plan, including getting the country to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. This 
the proposal would require $2 trillion of investment over the course of his term to boost reliance on clean energy and climate sustainable policies or practices rather. And then there's, you know, building the Affordable Care Act if, if still possible. And then, you know, education is an important part of his agenda, especially with Dr. Jill Biden leaving in education. And that includes extensive changes to education at all levels and support for the College for All Act proposed in 2017 by Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative uh, Pramila Jayapal. I want to say something real quick about things like the $2 trillion investment and the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. Those are scary numbers. I, I totally understand why somebody would balk at seeing that price tag. You have to keep in mind how much more expensive it will be to not pass that stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so huge. If we don't if we don't get people help now, then we are going to pay far more than one point nine trillion dollars to get out of the the, the problems called, caused by COVID. If we don't get a handle on global warming, the cost is going to be much higher than two trillion dollars. So whenever I see people like, oh, that's not that's that's so much money. We we shouldn't you know we're borrowing from the future, and and it's like if we don't do that, we might not have a future. <laughs> Yes. It is way more expensive to lose Miami and Washington, D.C. to the Atlantic Ocean than it is to take <laughs> steps now to make sure that the Atlantic Ocean just doesn't get there. You know? Right. I, everything has to be considered in context. Yeah. And, and it would it would probably be worth our time at some point to kind of talk about how um, the American, not the economic system, but like the government economic system works. Yeah, because it's very different than your and my economic system. That's exactly, sure. exactly. They There's just so many more zeros on the things that they do, but the accounting is also so much more creative. I don't know. It would be worth talking about at some point. But we, we do want to take a few minutes um, here right at the end to like, we're going to go neck deep into the opinion corner. Okay, so we're, we're not going to throw a lot of sources at you. We're, we're just going to kind of speak from our hearts here about something that isn't, it's not a part of this whole first 100 days agenda, uh, but it's likely going to be evaluated just as critically, if not more critically, than the policy goals that the Biden administration has stated. And that is their express purpose of creating a sense of unifying America, right? Uh, the Biden administration campaigned on, on being a presidency that would bring America back together. And we want to talk about that now because... It shares the same theme as a lot of the things that we say on this podcast. We can reach common understanding. We can solve our legislative problems by working together. We, we believe that we can work with people from across the political aisle. There seems to be a, a mentality, generally, among certain groups that in order to achieve this unity, everything that is done by the Biden administration should come with significant bipartisan support. If the Republicans don't get on board with the plan and President Biden or the Democrats in Congress push, you know, the policy through anyway, then the idea of unity is just another political lie. That seems to be the mentality. But the, the problem with that, the problem with that thought process is that it necessarily dictates that both parties should hold equal weight when it comes to matters of legislation. But that is not what the people of the United States voted for. Exactly. When the dust settled at the end of the November election, both houses of Congress, well, you know, for one of them, it was January, but both yeah. houses of Congress ended up with a Democratic majority. 
which means that Americans voted to have the Democrats drive the policymaking in our country. If they push something through that the Republicans don't want, that's still reflective of the will of the people. And if they allow Republicans to gridlock policy every time they raise an issue with legislation just to maintain the appearance of unity, then in effect, they're allowing the minority to set the rules of the road. And this goes for no matter which party's in power. Right, we could flip it completely and the, the conversation would be the same. It's, it's still the will of the people to have the majority party lead the way in policymaking. That's, that's how it works. That's how the United States was meant to operate. And if the, min the, the minority party was meant to have a voice, but they're the minority party because it's not their time to control the legislative process. Now, I will say there is a, a couple of caveats to that's how the United States is meant to operate. Right now, we're kind of sick because of things like gerrymandering and, and things like uh, a significant imbalance of power when it comes to how the Electoral College represents people. And things like, even though the Senate is split 50-50 right now, the Democratic side represents far, far, like tens of millions of more Americans than the Republican side, even though they have equal votes in the Senate until Vice President Harris uh, casts her vote. So there are issues there. Don't get us, don't misunderstand that. Right. But from a very high altitude view, that yeah. is how things are supposed to work. The minority maintains a voice, but they don't get to drive the policy anymore. So, so what is unity then? And it's, it's hard. It seems to be a difficult concept for the Biden administration to articulate, at least. The president told reporters that it means trying to eliminate the vitriol, trying to reflect what the majority of the American people, Democrat, Republican, Independent, think and trying to stay away from the ad hominem attacks on one another. Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it was about the country feeling like we're all in it together. Senator Warren went a completely different route <laughs> and defined it as being unified against insurrection. I think maybe she's a little off base uh, uh, <laughs> on that. I mean, Although being unified against insurrection is a good goal to have. It is a good goal to have. I feel like that uh, that was maybe a definition for a moment in time. Yeah, it seems a little pointed, doesn't it? But then again, Senator Warren is nothing if not pointed in her responses yeah. very often. Yeah, it is fun to watch her debate. Right. Uh, but something President Biden has made clear is that unity is not to be conflated with bipartisanship. He has said that if a piece of legislation breaks down on party lines, but it gets passed, it doesn't mean that there wasn't unity. It just means that it wasn't bipartisan. Again, that definition, making it complicated. It, unity is not, from a political perspective, just from a PR perspective, I wish that they would have chosen a different word. I understand right. why they chose that word, but that word has a very specific objective definition. And then to try to like fix that definition for politics, it's complicated. Yeah. As you can see. Yeah. They, they probably should have gone with something like uh, bringing respect back to America. Yeah. Bringing, um, bringing um, cooperation back. Cooperation back. Right. Because I think, I think that's what 
they really are that's the heart of the matter given that given that given that context i think we can if we may be so bold <laughs> we can offer you a framework for for what we think unity is that could be used to analyze whether or not there is unity in this administration first don't look at how many from which party voted on what bill to get it to pass instead Look at the bigger picture. At this point, how is the minority party, the Republicans, how are they being treated in the process of forming the legislation? Are they being given a seat at the table, a chance to address their concerns and offer a counterpoint? Are they being treated as representatives of Americans that deserve to have their voices heard? When you hear the stories about what bill or what executive order has been forced through by the Democrats, try to find out if there was a chance for the Republicans to have input. Most recently, we saw this when President Biden had 10 Republican members of Congress come to the White House to present their counterproposal to the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that many Republicans thought was just way too big. They were brought to the table and given a chance to present their perspectives. And yes, President Biden did ultimately reject their arguments, but the attempt to work together was there. Then look at how the Republicans react. And in the future, when inevitably the Democrats are in the minority again, look at how the Democrats react. Right. Right now, working toward unity means giving the minority party, the Republicans, a voice, not giving them control. So how are the Republicans showing up to represent their constituents? Are they bringing legislative points and counterpoints to the table that reflect a goal of compromise? Are they engaging in conversations surrounding policy, not people? Are they looking for ways to have their perspectives heard and represented in policies that may not fully reflect their political values? Because it takes two to achieve anything like unity or compromise or bipartisanship or respect, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, let's face it, American politics are nasty. And we can already see the political attacks filling our headspace. The 2022 campaign trail is going to be filled with attacks on the Democrats for not keeping their promise of unifying America because bills are passed along party lines or policy making happens by executive order. Attacks on the Republicans for holding fast to partisanship and refusing to participate in legislation initiated by the Democrats. It all feels inevitable, but political positioning is not reflective of reality, and it never has been. You know that we here at Fireside Productions believe in the goal of coming together as Americans. Responsibly. With accountability with good faith attempts to solve a problem for Americans, not for our party or our outlying affiliations. But as we have seen demonstrated to us over and over again, both sides have to want that unity. Extending a hand to somebody who has their back turned to you does no good. So if we may be so bold as to encourage you, when you go to determine whether or not this administration has made good on its goal of unity, 
make sure that you're paying attention to whether or not these parties are actually facing each other when they start to make accusations. Note whether or not what you see as headlines reflects a good faith effort on both sides to come together, or whether one side or another is just jockeying for position. Cries for unity without an attempt to participate in that unity are nothing more than political manipulation. Robin? Yeah. Tell the good people how to reach us if they want to... uh... Give us their thoughts on unity. <laughs> yeah, if you would like, if you would like to propose your own definition of unity to us, you can do that. You know how you could do that? You could do that with a review on your favorite podcasting platform. You could do that with a comment on Podbean. You could even do that on our Facebook page. That's right, our Facebook page, Fireside Breakdowns. Fun story. We're also on Instagram and technically Twitter. Guys, we're really good at research. We're moderately okay at podcasting. We're really bad at Twitter. But you know how you can help us fix that? You can follow us and engage us in some conversation. Draw us in. Really teach us how to use the Twitter. Help us help you. Help Help us us help help you. you. Exactly. Exactly. No, seriously, though. We would absolutely love to hear from any and all of you who have thoughts, opinions on This episode, if you go back and listen to episode 11 on presidential transitions and you have thoughts on that, tell us about those. If you see something out in the wild that you would love us to explain, break down, rant about, share it with us. Because all of that helps us build a community and helping us build a community will help us reach other people. And that is what this is all about. Conversations about how we can come together in cooperation, I'm not saying unity because unity is a very specific thing, President Biden. We can come together and we can cooperate and we can solve these big deal problems together. And it all starts with you leaving us a Facebook review. Oh, so good. I'm going to give us some good news. And give then some good play news. Those funky tunes. Yes. All right. So. This piece of news is a great connector between this episode and our series on representation. For the first time in history, all Biden White House press briefings will include an American Sign Language interpreter. Press Secretary Jin Psaki said on January 27th, as a part of this administration's accessibility and inclusion efforts starting today, we will have an ASL, an American Sign Language interpreter, for our daily press briefings. This is a huge step toward the inclusion of a significant group of people in the American democratic process, and it's definitely the kind of good news we love to share. I really hope that that they get... Hmm? I'm shocked that that's, like, this is the first time in history. What? Yeah. I I actually had to double check that. How? 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 I am sure, I am sure that we have people who are familiar with the deaf community that can... (laughs) enlighten us in all of the ways that they are overlooked in all of these important areas and it would make me very sad but i am happy that today we have taken a step towards bringing them back in this is a big deal um, big action taken in the first hundred days love it i hope they get the guy from georgia who was doing all of the interpretation uh during all of the the drama the the bald guy with the beard yes yes he looked kind of (laughs) 
I just I just loved his attitude and his facial expressions. I hope they get him to do a few. Yeah, I have um, to admit to watching, like I watched as many, even after everything was settled and I knew what was going to happen, I still watched all of George's press conferences because A, Gabe Sterling, but two, that guy. And so like to them together, it was amazing. It was just fantastic. It was so good. All right. Uh, I believe that's everything for this episode. We will see you in one week with our next amazing episode. Hey, if you enjoyed our... Uh, series on uh uh, uh, representation nope hey if you enjoyed our series on conspiracy theories uh that was a listener request we really enjoyed that one too please let us know if you have something you want us to cover that's it for now everybody thank you very much for listening and take care of each other (laughs) 